0: Blessing the Lord with what he's blessed us with. Uh, We've had the boxes on the wall there for a long time and most of us are fairly well trained to either put our tithe and offering in there or to forget and come back during the week and put it back in. You sneak by, I know you do, some of us do. And so this will help to remind us that there's a place for us to give as unto the Lord. And we have, at the annual meeting, discovered with the membership we share with you that over the last year with the economy the way it is, the church accumulated about $9,000 in debt. Now, we're basically debt-free here with the exception of that $9,000. We've got multiple acres here. that's paid off. We've done a good job over the years of taking care of all that. But we have accumulated, as some of us have in these tough times, some additional debt. But we received a letter from uh, persons in the church that want to remain anonymous, saying, "I believe God wants to wipe out the debt, and I want to help. I'm going to give a thousand dollars, but I want to challenge the body to look for eight other people to give a thousand. You know, or sixteen at five hundred, or whatever. But uh, we think that what we'd like to do is present the opportunity to get together and have a big potluck and fellowship." And to come as in the days of, uh, of the Old Testament when the men gathered three times a year in Jerusalem for the festivals, Passover being one of those, Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it said, the Lord said that all the men of Israel show up three times a year and don't let any of them come empty handed. They were to bring an offering when they came. It wasn't said the amount, size, or dimension of what it should be. He just said, let everybody come and as the Lord's blessed them, bring an offering when you come. So we thought they suggest in the letter, I agree that. We like getting together and eating, right? We do it pretty well. And uh, it's our Christian vice, <coughs> eating, drinking coffee, and the like. And uh, so we said, well, let's get together. Let's fellowship. And let's just, on that time when we call for that meal together to celebrate, we'll just bring an offering. And so their challenge was, to anybody that wanted to match their and jump in and do it. And I, I should let you know that since that has happened, I think we had three responses. People saying, I'm in. And so we're, we're just attacking the debt. But we'll have a fellowship meal together here soon. We'll pick a date and let you know about it. And then when we come, we'll just bring an offering. And if the little ones can come and bring a dime or a dollar amen. and say amen to Jesus and bless him, and you can bring five or ten, and uh, or maybe between now and then, Lord bless you, and you can bring a thousand, whatever. It's not about the amount. We're not going to sit around and pick it out and say, oh, by the way, they did and they did and they did, and announce amen. it. We're just going to come with joy. And serve the Lord and watch him take care of it by miracle. Is that okay? And so this morning as we receive an offering, it's really not the church receiving it. You're giving us unto the Lord. We're going to be good stewards of it. We're going to put it where it's supposed to be. If it's your regular tithe, you know we're going to take care of that the way you do. You want us to. Okay, so can I pray? Father, as we enter this uh, time of giving, we thank you for all of the blessings you've given to us. We do live in a blessed state. Lord, even in a trying economy, we know that we're in the top probably 5% of the world in in, uh, resources. And individually, we thank you. Corporately, we bless you. And this morning, as we give, we give as unto you. Uh, Not out of need, not out of of, uh, any kind of forcing here, Lord. We give it because we want to. We take this opportunity as a reminder to love you in this regard. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 As we're doing that, is there anybody in this, the life groups that wants to testify about something that's happened in your group this week, last couple of weeks? Biff.
1: You well, we the, the, uh, yeah. might
0: want to pause that or something there. Sorry, go ahead. And I was still
1: and so we started a collection, and I just put it in there. But we've already gathered this week.
0: And we want to contribute for the fetish uh, of death. Wow. The death. Wow. Praise the Lord. Any other testimonies from life, life groups this week? John? Well, we
1: had a baptism this
0: week. Yeah. Uh, Elaborate slightly. Where do
1: they do that? Spring. Uh-huh. And uh, she's been a member of our uh, life group for a number of years. And, uh, He has a Catholic background. Mm -hmm. And uh, we finally offered to understand the
0: real meaning of Adult
1: Baptism. Amen. So that's what we did last year. Amen. was to have you
0: with us. That was so lovely. This will be over at the McGeeans' house. Yeah. It was awesome. And Elaine Spring is not a spring chicken. <laughs> I mean, she's she's, she's in a geriatric baptism, and, and I don't say that to slight her anyway. I mean, I think it's phenomenal that Amen. she's come to this revelation, and she's baptized in Catholic, you know, infant baptism and all that, but came to a place saying, "I need to be baptized. I need to follow the Lord Jesus in this." And she committed her heart fully in front of us once again to Christ, and it was just beautiful to be there. Amen. Any other life group testimonies going on? What's going on out there?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, um, uh, Amen. Save in the cell group. Praise the Lord. Yes, sir.
1: We have a new cell, a cell starting this Thursday, actually. Uh, so, junior high, kind of about 8th grade to 12th grade, led by that lady right there. Lee Ellsworth. Yeah. <laughs> write that one down. okay oh, okay
0: now I know I can't get into this one but what are the parameters again the years ages or 14 to 18 girls and that's going to be on Thursdays six to seven thirty at your place cool and where will you be hiding Tony. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right
0: hey, Mark your calendars. I don't have a bulletin, so I can't verify if this is in the bulletin or not, but uh, I'll borrow yours. Thank you. Thanks for those props. Good. Right here on the bottom corner, this uh, Worldview weekend online rally. Um, Josh Bailey is going to host this here. There is a lot in this paragraph. I'm not going to try and read that. But I want to make you aware of it. Mark your calendars on February 27th. We're going to come back here in the afternoon, 3 o'clock to 6. It's a three-hour event. There will be plenty of stuff here to snack and make it through with. But uh, Josh is going to host that and maybe broadcast that throughout the community as well. Brandon House is a a great speaker, and those that he has on his programming uh, really do an excellent job at laying out worldview stuff. And it's interesting to me, I was talking with uh, someone this week about how worldview was probably not even in our vocabulary 10 years ago, but how popular it's become. But just because it's popular doesn't mean we know what it is or that we have a good one. And so one of the things we're committed to here, and we heard again from our leadership meeting, that uh, one of the desires of the body of Christ here is to become more spiritually mature all the time, to grow up into the head, to become more and more Christ-like, And more and more biblical, more and more spiritual in character and nature. And so these are things that we want to do along the way that will help strengthen the body of Christ in that regard. So the Worldview Weekend, February 27th, come and it'll be online. So we won't be in charge of the timing uh, to delay it at all. So it'll be up and running by three. Uh, Come early and we'll get set down and get started. So we've got a little time to plan for that one. Okay, let's see. Three messages. Pick one. Actually, that's not the case. Turn with you to Genesis chapter 14. I will attempt to do my very best this morning, but I will let you know that I feel slightly unprepared. Because the depth of the topic is much bigger than me. And I think it's just kind of an opening of revelation for me, and I hope for you. I'll say this at the onset, that it would be my desire that by the end of this message, no matter how brief, you feel and sense more liberty and more freedom in the areas that we talk about, not more bondage or more legalistic or a law-driven approach. I want you to feel freer and more liberty in the areas that we talk about. Everybody hear that? That's my goal. So if I miss it, forgive me. If I hit it, we'll go out with joy. Is that all right? In Genesis chapter 14, we have the, pet, the account of, uh, of a war. And I probably shouldn't go without saying there's plenty of that going on in the Middle East. And it's something we pray about. Lots of things going on over there that are significant. And uh, when you talk about having a worldview, you should be able to have a worldview that looks at what's going on in the Middle East and interpret it by the Word of God. Not just be freaked out or weird, wondering what's going to happen. You should be able to say, that's why it's happening. This is what the Bible says, and that's how we look at it. We see it clearly through the the screen and, and scope of Scripture. It says the king keen to pass in the days of, oh, I'm not going to read all these guys' names, come on. Yeah. They got together in the valley of Siddim, verse 3. Twelve years they had served Ketelmear, and uh, we're going to scoot on down here. And they got back to this and that. And the king of Sodom, verse 8, the king of Gomorrah, king of Adma, king of Zebul, king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against or. King of Elam, title king, and those guys too. Four kings against five. I told you I wasn't ready. (laughs) Now the valley of Sidon was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother, brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, For he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Aner. And they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants, who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba that is the king's valley after his return from the defeat of Kittle Leomer and the kings who were with him so that was really a bad reading however I got through it so I'm proud of myself for that anyway for hacking my way through that forest of people Big war. Four against five. Sodom and Gomorrah get stripped. All their stuff takes off. Abram gets word that in the mix of everything that happened is Lot. And he takes all of his trained guys, goes down and beats up on them. Takes everything back. Gets Lot and gets all the people and all the stuff. Gets everything. Something that the other uh, four kings couldn't do by by themselves. Abram does it all by himself with his trained servants. And as he's coming back, in verse 17, the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. The king of the town. Okay? Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem. Different place. King of Salem. King of, we know it as Jerusalem. King of Salem. Brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. I thought of this this morning as we were having communion. First opportunity, bread and wine. Melchizedek. Is the priesthood of Jesus. This is a, some will say this is a Christophany. This is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. This is the priest that had no beginning of days, no end of days, and Jesus was called. Psalm 110, I believe it is. Let me just buzz over here and be, really show my very unpreparedness. 110, verse 4 The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is a prophetic utterance of Christ. Jesus, you're of this priesthood line. By the way, this priesthood line doesn't come with the Levitical priesthood. It comes with the priesthood out of Judah, which there was no priesthood mentioned in the tribe of Judah, but Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And uh, so Melchizedek comes out. So you got Abraham's riding into town. you got all this stuff following him and all these people. and Lot's really happy to be on his way home. Out comes the king of Sodom, and out comes the king of Salem. The priest, Melchizedek. And verse 19, And he blessed him and said, Now this is Melchizedek doing the blessing. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And look at Abram's response in the very next sentence. What does it say? And he gave him a tenth of everything. This is pre-law. This is pre-tithe. This is pre-law. What is Abram doing? Here comes Sodom. Here comes Salem. Abram, you're blessed. God's blessed you. And God is blessed because of what you've done. And Abram, if you will, kind of puts his hand up towards the king of Sodom and says, hold right there for just a moment. And he takes 10% of everything and gives it to the king of Sodom. This is an act of worship. This is an act of honor. This is a moment of honoring God and the priesthood, which is pre the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood. This is the man of God, the representative of God. And he says, here's an act of worship, 10%. Now the king. Anybody nervous? Because he's talking about tithing here. Okay. What did I say at the onset? When we go out, I want you to have more liberty and more freedom than law. Okay. That's where we're going. That's where I want to get to. <clears throat> and now that now he takes his hand down. I'm just, I'm doing this. It's not in the Bible. I'm just you know it's football kind of a you know straight arm to Sodom, and uh, no face mask, no 15 yards. <laughs> Now, the king of Sodom said to Abram, the king of Sodom speaking now, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. What's left? 90%. Right? 90% is left. Just give me the people that you've rescued. You keep all the stuff. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, which is The sentence out of the blessing from Melchizedek, isn't it? That I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. And that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you would say, I made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. This is such a great... Count. Abram goes out, serves the Lord, gets everybody back, gives honor to the the God of heaven, is blessed by the God of heaven through the priest, and then gives everything back to the king of Sodom, so that he comes out with nothing except for his expenses. Right? Fed all the guys. That's what it said, just you know, whatever we've eaten, we ate because we were out there fighting, okay? Can't give that back, so we're just going to keep that, but not a thread to a sandal strap. will I keep because you, king of Sodom, who lost the war already and I fought it for you. I'm not going to let you say that you made me rich. Why? Because I'm serving the God of heaven. And in the next chapter, these things, after these things, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision saying, Don't be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. You think God would have said that to him? He said, yeah, I'm going to keep the 90%. No. He'd have been on his own. He would have been making a statement that everything I take for myself is what supports me. Everything that I can get on my own is what makes me great. Everything that I can uh, somehow forage for myself is what I trust in. You see, by the giving over the 10th, as an act of worship says, I'm trusting God most high with everything. In fact, so much so that we give the ninety percent back over here. Am I saying you should give up ninety percent of your salary today? No. I'm saying there's an act of worship and realism that's going on in Abram's moment that is here for our instruction. It's to show us the shape of our heart. Jesus said, Mark, Luke. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. Abram said, I'm not going to let the king of Sodom say he increased me. I'm depending on God to take care of me. And as soon as he lets go of that and walks away, God says, I am your exceedingly great reward. And this gives Abram an audience with God as well. He begins to speak to him. God, what will you give me? I didn't keep the 90%. I didn't keep the 10%. What will you do for me. Well, he couldn't possibly say, God, you owe me one, could he? Can you? No. Can I? No. I can say, God, you owe me one. No. <laughs> Yikes. What a bad <laughs> statement that would be, huh? God, you owe me one. I, I think I've said it somewhere over the years. You owe me for that one. I've had others say, that was such a nice thing. God really ought to. I say, God owes me nothing. Uh, I'm breathing today. This is a good thing. Uh, I woke up above ground. That was all right, too. And uh, although waking up below ground would be all right. He brings him outside and says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to give you an air in your own house while I don't have any kids. He says, come on outside just for a second. And Just not more than a few weeks ago in in our kids' cell here on Wednesday night, this was part of what we did. I said, Okay, kids, let's go outside. It was freezing cold. We went out on the porch. I said, Come on, we won't be out here long. I said, Look up at the stars. I'm
1: like, Okay, now what? I
0: said, Count
1: them.
0: It was so fun. The little teeth were chattering. One, two, four,
1: seven, twelve, sixteen.
0: Finally, let's get back inside. And uh says, if you count those, that's how many kids you're going to have. Abram. And verse 6 says, he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. Abram, turn with we'll me to Hebrews chapter 7. Was, Abram was a man who followed God. Abram was a man who practiced worship and dedication to God prior to any law that required him to do so. He had an act of worship in the 10% and the giving back of everything to Sodom. He kept his heart right in how he handled what came into his possession. Now, he probably could have done well to have that other 90%. He had 300 and how many? 18 trained servants in his own household. Those guys could probably eat something. Probably needed some equipment. Could have improved his situation slightly. But he knew in his heart of hearts what was right. When we get to Hebrews, I'm just going to pick up in chapter 6, verse 19, which is not the best, but it's not bad, because there's things ahead of it we should read. And I'll let you get back to that, perhaps this afternoon, prior to 3 o'clock. <laughs> or oh, 2.30, whatever the game show starts. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is, from their brothers, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Would you agree? The lesser is blessed by the greater. So in this case, the lesser is Abram, the greater is Melchizedek. Here, on this earth, if you will, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, Levi represents, right, the priesthood, under the law of Moses. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. You get that? Levi was still in the loins there, hadn't been born yet, but would be a descendant of Abraham. So when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi was in there and would come along later, and so it was accounted that he also paid tithe to Melchizedek. Therefore, if perfection through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, therefore if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he, capital H, of whom these things are spoken, belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest, who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he, Jesus, with an oath by him, God, who said to Jesus, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety or a guarantee of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. And priest after priest after priest because they were dying off. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Now, I hope you're not entirely falling asleep by my reading. This is incredibly powerful stuff. And we're going further because I have to get to the end of this reading. You're going, man, what does all this mean? That's exactly my question. I want to know what all this means. I want to know this priest after the order of Melchizedek who serves with an endless life. I want to know why it's important that he came in the place and replaced the law. I want to know why he was before the law and why he was after the law. And I want to know what that means for me today. And I tell you what, I think my heart is changing. I'm actually in kind of a dangerous place, personally. Share that with you. I'm I'm not there yet, but there's this thing that people go through called crisis of faith. Have you ever heard of crisis of faith? They question their faith. I don't have the crisis of faith where I doubt my faith. I'm having a crisis of faith where I'm starting to look at things differently and go, oh, I don't think I saw that before. After all these years, I'm being set free. And I want the body to be set free. I want life to flow in Jesus' name because he is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I don't want us to try and flow under a a bridled, constrained, law-driven attitude towards God. And I know I'm guilty of preaching it. You know, we, I've said before, just as an example, and this was not planned, so it won't be that great. When I plan them, they're great.
1: <laughs>
0: and I've said, you know, other preachers told me, said, if you're ever called on to preach spontaneously, you know, just in a moment in a crowd. And they say, hey, you preach. And you want to make sure you head home, preach on prayer, because nobody prays enough. You hear that? Yeah, yeah. Nobody prays enough. You're gonna feel the finger shaking at you. So if you want to make sure you get everybody in the room, to preach on prayer, and they'll all feel this. <laughs> this law-driven—you don't pray enough. Like there's yeah. some quantity that we're all supposed to know about. We rush to Gethsemane. Couldn't you tarry one hour? Yeah. And we hang out there for a while and put the pressure on. Come on, you're not praying for an hour, are you? Well, I fell asleep after 15 minutes, and now I'm condemned for the rest of the week. Because God hates me. Because I couldn't measure up to the law praying for an hour. I many even felt it. Huh? It's terrible. The, the priest, the, the Mephazidic priesthood, didn't come along to smush us under a un, something we couldn't do, something was unachievable. He came to set us free. So that we could do it out of love and response to who he is. maybe finishing the, the poor illustration. Now that if, if I fall asleep after 15 minutes and I wake up, I could just say, "Oh, Jesus, I'm refreshed to go on. Amen. And if I make it to 17 minutes or 22, I don't think you're counting, are you? I mean, you must want me to rest right there. That was nice. Thank you. I'm free to pray again. I'm free to pray more. If I pray for six or eight hours. You know, the guys that pray six or eight hours a day, ask them if they pray enough. You know what they'll say? No, I didn't pray enough today. I only prayed six hours. (laughs) You know, as I crawl into my shell. saying he prayed six hours, didn't pray enough. What does that mean to me? That means that God's called him to a life of prayer, and God didn't put it on me yet. And I'm free to fall asleep in 15 minutes if I have to. (laughs) But I'm free to serve Jesus. Okay. That break in reading so you could wake up. <laughs> and I have this highlighted in chapter 8. First part says, now this is the main point of the things we're saying. I like statements like that. <laughs> oh, okay. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. That's where the real mercy seat is, heaven. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one, capital O, one, Jesus, also have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things of pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Oh, my mind races back to Melchizedek and Abram. And what does he bring to celebrate the victory? Bread and wine. I don't know the depth of that moment, but I see it. That this one who came, this this appearance of Jesus to Abram, this order of Melchizedek priest, brings the very statement of what he will do in the future in giving his body and blood for the for us, way before any law was on the scene, he said. Basically, he's saying, "I'm God. I'm in charge. I'm doing this now, and it's going to be confirmed thousands of years from now." But don't you worry. I'm going to bless you. <laughs> I don't see God in that kind of kind of foreknowledge and power and omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence, saying to you and I the thumb of a law that you can't possibly ever measure up to. And I'm going to hold it over you every day until you repent and get right and work harder at it. I see a God who's paved the way to bless before Abram knew he needed to be blessed. He came out to meet him. Cut Sodom off at the past. <laughs> Said, you just hang on a second. I got a little business to do with my boy Abram here. Blessed. You're blessed. You are blessed, and God's blessed because of what you did. He said, here's a tithe. You have the 90%, and I see how this is working out. I'm the blessed one. For if that first covenant had been faultless, talking about the law under Moses, if the first covenant had been faultless, And no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Pride will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant, it's in quotes, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete and growing old, is ready to vanish away. (laughs) Let give you an expert on the subject. A guy named Wiest. Anybody know Wiest? One of the great New Testament scholars. This is a, a, a commentary out of Mark chapter 2 where Jesus is talking about putting an old patch on a new wineskin or pouring new wine into old wineskins. You kind of familiar with that? Yeah. No, no man puts it a new piece of cloth on an, or an unfold piece of cloth on an old wineskin because as it begins to shrink, it will tear and make it, make it worse. And you don't put new wine into old wineskins because it's so alive that it will burst them. The point is that unfold cloth would shrink when used to patch fold, fold, F-U-L-L-E-D, fold cloth and thus tear away from the latter. I'm skipping some of the Greek definitional stuff here. The worn-out garment, weakened by use and age, would not furnish the unfold patch with enough of a grip to keep both together. The patch refers to the Messiah's new type of ministry and preaching, grace, as compared to the Mosaic law. The old worn-out garment, which was ready to be set aside. We must be careful not to drive every detail of this parable to the wall. No parable walks on all fours, but will limp somewhere if the expositor seeks to explain every detail. No illustration using material objects to explain spiritual truth is able to perfectly comprehend the latter for this, for the reason, and for the reason that the material, you know, this, the hard world, the material, and the spiritual Occupy two different spheres. So it's hard to take something in the natural to explain the spiritual element completely. Now at the end of this says there are those today who attempt to retain the Mosaic law, which God set aside at the cross and put upon it the patch of grace. It happens, as our Lord said, the new piece that fills it up, takes away from the old and the tear is made worse. When the attempt is made to mix law and grace, both lose their true identity. And you have the doctrines of the Judaizers in the Galatian heresy. I was rereading Galatians and I'm rereading Galatians. I like that question asked by by the professor at the beginning of the freshman year in the in the English literature class, he asked his students, take out a piece of paper. And this is a trick question, so don't fail on the point. Take out a piece of paper, and I want you to write down for me the books that you read. And boy, they just started going. Woo, 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 woo. And he could tell that he had got him moving. He waited for a few minutes. He said, okay, stop, stop, stop. I can tell that you've all misunderstood the question. I don't want to know what you have read I want to know what you read and what you reread and what you regularly read. That should be a shorter list. And so I'm putting Galatians on my short list. I want to reread it. I want to reread it. There's a, a some definition in here between law and grace that I need. I've lived in my Christian experience, I think, that many of us have in a way that says You know, there's this huge law hanging over our head all the time about do's and don'ts and living up to and not being able to. And then we repent, and then we get right, and then we try again. Anybody with me? When when this one verse that we just read, right here, this big bright yellow one on my page, (laughs) that one right there. (coughs) Hebrews 8.13, in that he says, a new covenant is made the first obsolete. I took you to the parking lot and I had two cars sitting side by side and I said, this one's obsolete, this one's new, pick yours. Drive whichever one you want home, it's yours forever. That's pretty simple. I can understand that. Maybe there's one guy in a thousand that says, well, I'm a collector. <laughs> I like to restore old things. If that is not restorable, it is obsolete. That means there's no parts. There's no way. And you're not ever going to make it new again. It's just obsolete. One in a thousand is going to pick that. But I believe the church has preached so hard to us over the years, myself included, that we live in the obsolete car, trying to make it work all the time. When Jesus said, I am the priest according to Melchizedek, I come to bring you life. I come to bring you freedom. I came to set the old one aside. In that he, made the, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let me tell you my simple, maybe non-spiritual response to this. I immediately say, why do we have the Old Testament in this book? Well, if we're not supposed to follow it, why is it in here? There's an answer to that question. And that comes with your biblical worldview. It'll help you. The Old Testament, as we've said, the, the, you know, we probably leave it at this too quickly. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And it is for you and I as sons of the king to search out truth. Amen. And we need both to make it happen. But what happens is we end up under this law. So if I bring up the word tithe or offerings... Or even my mind shifts. And I've got three pages here. That being one of them. That not being one of them. This being the other two. This is a teaching on tithe. Simple. I put it together back in uh, 1998. It's not new information. It's been in the Bible a long time. It's not hard to pull out a different little study on tithe. But I'm reading through my own teaching that I did at a youth conference on tithe. They asked me to teach on the topic, so I did. And you know what? I've given myself about a 65 to 80% on this test. Because I've got the law here. But I did have this section back here that says, what's the heart of the matter? The heart of the matter is that in everything, we must turn our hearts to God. In everything, it's more than ritual. It's more than just keeping a list. There are plenty of people that tithe 10% that don't have an inkling who God is. It happens all over the country. People give 10% to churches, to charities. There's philanthropies out there that, my goodness, they're giving millions and billions of dollars every year to charitable things, but they're not doing it in the name of God. Well, are they fulfilling the law? Maybe the old one. But Jesus said, I came to give you a new covenant. I'm going to write this one on your heart. I'm going to put this one in your minds. And by that, you'll respond. I've always taught and believed that 10%, because of what happened in Abram giving to Melchizedek, he demonstrated that as an act of worship, tithing was a simple thing. It was like, everything I have belongs to God. So how can I keep myself in check? How can I keep my heart right before him? If I was to take the first 10%, that's illustrated from Scripture, and give that to him, wouldn't that keep me in check, saying, now I don't have 100% to live on, I only have 90%, and if it's going to go the distance, well, that means he has to take care of me. Mm -hmm. I'm throwing myself into his care. What if I did 20%? What if we gave 30%? Is there any hindrance to that? In the New Testament, it's about stewardship. Everything I have comes from him. My health, my life. My well-being. We tend to revolve around finances in this nation. right? But what if we didn't have any? <laughs> Which may be the case in a couple of years. Would he still have my heart? Would I still be able to help the poor? The widow? The stranger? The orphan? The fatherless? Where would my heart be? Would I be able to approach the moment of need and say, well, I don't have much, but I could share with you. Would I be okay if it wasn't all about my checkbook? Jesus' challenge is challenges this. Where your, where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. If he's written his laws on my heart, he wasn't talking about the old Mosaic law, writing that on my heart. He was talking about writing a new covenant on my heart. Where I get to be in love with him. Where I get to have him head Sodom off At the past and say, let me be the king of peace to you. Remember we preached on shalom a while back? I've appreciated lots of you who have said back to me, shalom. As I know you know what you're saying to me. It's full of life. It's full of mercy. It's full of grace and love and peace and joy. And I think that, um, I'm just telling you this personally. I I know you want to go home. I know you want to get your pizza ordered or whatever. You want to get this. it's, it's, It's only 11.20. My greatest concern isn't you being late getting out here. It's Leah with the kids. He's over there going, Pastor Jeff, I'm going to wring his neck. He's going long again. How come he always goes long when I'm doing kids' song? Well, that made me shut down, so I better quit. I'm thinking that is important. i got to stop. i stop. Personal note and done. Around here, um, this is no big deal. It's just kind of the way we do business. But we we have in our law structure for this country for ministers a thing called the voluntary withholding agreement. Anybody that's in ministry can, can use this to their advantage, really, tax-wise. It just means that we have uh, our tithe taken out of our check and withheld and never given to us. You might think that's a little on the Mormon side of things.
1: But... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
0: but, uh, yeah, but but it, it is a it's a tax structural thing that that I can elect here as I do to say to the to the church and it's a tax benefit for me it's a tax savings for the church. I said instead of paying me the money and me giving it back as a tithe, just withhold it from me and it's an agreement we make. So if I want to if you want to check on me on the Mosaic law psh, to the penny, I got somebody else doing the math every time. It comes, mine doesn't come. They just keep 10%. And there are days I wish I could do that with you.
1: <laughs> Under the old law.
0: But when I'm saying I'm looking for this liberty and this order of Melchizedek, this covenant written on the heart, I'm, I'm tempted to say, even be, even though it would hurt tax-wise for me and for the body, see, for that to happen, anyway, well, i get into the math of it, but <laughs> said, just give it to me, give me all of it, and let me write mine back, because I want to be free to give. I don't want to just have it taken from me on a legalistic kind of mosaical ten percent law base, to where it's just withheld and then I'm never allowed to give anymore. said, just give it all to me. Let me give twelve or fifteen or twenty or thirty percent. I want to get into this flow that that Abram had, saying let me bless God first. Let him take care of the rest. Is anybody feeling more liberty about legalistic things right now than you did before you got here? Even slightly. I'm hoping for slightly today. I don't think we're getting it all the way through. But I'm feeling better. I think there's a God who wants us to live free. And not look at each other like it's some kind of a 10% competitive legalistic thing on tithing or on giving to the poor or helping the community, or reaching out with the gospel, saying I have to do it because God says go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Okay, I have to, have to, have to. No, how about if you got up in the morning and said, man, I can't wait to because I want to. God set me free with the want to that I ought to have, and set me free from the have to that maybe even I've put on myself or the church has put on me over the years. Help me to get out from under the bondage of the old covenant. Am I okay? Yeah. Anybody wants to, you can shout heresy all the way to the parking lot.
1: <laughs> and I'll
0: come under it for a while. Father, set us free. Break upon us revelation, truth of life, through the person of your Son. For Jesus, I know I don't understand it completely. But I see it. There's a glimmer of it for me. And I thank you for it. But I don't have to live under bondage. I don't have to live under the constraints of a law that's been passed away because you fulfilled it and because you nailed it to the cross so that you could set a new covenant in place for me, for us, for your body, for your bride, so that she could live free and actually accomplish spreading your kingdom throughout the world without any kind of Uh, treachery, or, or feeling bound to something. Lord, I pray that you'll compel us by the great love that you've shown to us, that we also will respond by this great love, and by that be compelled to do what we can to put your kingdom first, and to seek your kingdom first, and let the rest get added on. Lord, take away from us the spirit of worry, where we fret over the things we have, and the Stuff we think we have to hang on to. Help us to set it free to, to serve you. Lord, I pray that you'll raise us up to a place where 10% is just a getting started level. And we can become more fully involved in your kingdom and in this new covenant relationship where you have promised to take care of us more so than the lilies of the field and the grass or the sparrows. Lord, you said you know everything we need before we ask. And you're very willing to give us your kingdom. Help us walk in this. In Jesus' name, Lord, take us to another step.
1: Amen. Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Thanks for enduring me
1: today. <laughs>